Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, with the wine that he drank. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now to worship you through the preaching of your holy word. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would lead us and that you would guide us. We pray that you would illumine our hearts and we pray that you would give us understanding. And we pray that we would not just simply know but our prayer is that we would grow. We pray that by your spirit we would grow. Sanctify us now. We thank you for our time together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what we have before us in the book of Daniel is the spiritual testimony of a man spanning over 70 years of his life, from his time as a youth all the way to his old age. And it covers a period in which the people of God experienced great difficulty as they lived in the days of what is called the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile. It was 605 B.C. to be exact. Six centuries before the Christ. that the deportation of the Israelites into Babylon had begun. People were ripped away from their homes and from their cities, from their country, taken into captivity into a strange land. And everything around them was, was foreign. Where their surrounding was filled with godlessness. Where they now had to live in a society that was totally pagan. But you see, what devastated the people of God the most was the fact that they no longer had access to the temple. The holy place of worship. Where the presence of their God dwelled in Shekinah glory. And so what were they going to do without the ability to offer that worship and to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Well, Psalm 137, you don't have to turn there, gives us another perspective of what it was like in exile. Listen to the psalmist. He writes, By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we sung our harps, for there our captors asked for us songs, our tormentors, demanded songs of joy. And they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And here's what he says. How can we sing the Lord's song while in a foreign land? You see, this question is the very crux of the entire book of Daniel. How can I be faithful while living in this 
dark and godless place. And you see, church, even though the book of Daniel is over two and a half thousand years old, removed from us, it speaks to our very context. Because you see, we too live in a foreign land filled with all kinds of unrighteousness, where what is moral is considered immoral, where what is immoral is considered moral, where justice is no longer justice, where it is flipped upside down. We live in a world that feels very upside down, where holiness and the worship of God is the rare exception. And so we find ourselves in very challenging and difficult situations and circumstances where we ask ourselves, well, here I am. I live here in the Bay Area. Here I am. I work for such and such a company. How can I be faithful in this position? And it seems like it's almost impossible to respond rightly to our situation. How can I do it? Well, here's what the book of Daniel teaches us at its very opposite. That there's no situation that renders it impossible to be totally faithful to Jesus Christ. And we learned that lesson from the life of Daniel with his friends. How can I sing the Lord's song in my trying circumstance? My trying circumstances. Daniel wants to tell us that I can sing. You see, I can worship him. I can remain faithful because God will not let me be tempted beyond more than what I can bear, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's possible. And not only is it possible, but God demands that I be faithful. And so how is Daniel faithful? And what can we learn from this brother? I think three things from this story that we read here in these first eight verses. And here's sort of the outline to the sermon here. The first point is going to be this. Daniel recognized the sovereignty of God. Daniel recognized the sovereign purposes of God as he was in exile. That's one. Number two is this. He realized what was spiritually taking place there in the king's court. In other words, he was very spiritually aware. He wasn't naive as to what was going on around him. And number three is this. He was resolved to take a stand. We see this in verse 8. If you look at verse 8 with me, it says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And so that's the third. And so we begin with the first, and it's this, that Daniel, he, he recognized the sovereignty of God. And we see that in verse 1. Look with me in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now the author of the book is Daniel. And he begins his memoirs by giving us an account as to why the people of God were in the place that they were in. And he gives us the plain facts, the information from a very human point of view. He answers the, the who, what, and the when questions. Notice he answers the who, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then he answers the what. He came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And he answers the when, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. But I want you to notice in your Bibles, if you look down in verse 2, that Daniel gives us the same event, but through a different pair of lenses. Look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Same event. But there's a difference. The viewpoint of the subject, or, or the, the subject has changed. It's not a man. It's not, it's not King Nebuchadnezzar. 
but it's, it's God. God. That the reason as to why King Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem is because the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see, there are two perspectives here. One from a human point of view and another from God's point of view. One details the event like normal history, but the other with biblical theology. And you see, Daniel, as he writes his memoirs, he recognized that God was behind this. And you see, many of the, you think about all these Israelites in the siege of Jerusalem, they're crying out, where is God? Where is God? He's nowhere. He's gone missing. He's abandoned us. Yet Daniel understood that God was right in the middle of that exile. He recognized that in this great tragedy, that in this great difficulty, God was at work. And that he couldn't just view this enormous trial simply in terms of events. Because that's what we do. But rather in terms of the sovereign purposes of God. Daniel went beyond the who, what, when questions and he asked, hear this, he asked the why. Why is this happening? Why is this taking place? And I believe that Daniel, he came to two conclusions about the sovereignty of God. One was that in exile, he had encountered a faithful sovereignty. You see, Daniel knew his Bible. He was intimately familiar with God's word. And so from Deuteronomy 28, it says, blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. And that if Israel went astray, that God would send the nation into exile. Or in Isaiah 39, when the prophet told Hezekiah, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house shall be carried away to Babylon and nothing will be left, says the Lord. And so Daniel saw that God was being faithful to his word. And you see, we tend to think of God's faithfulness in a very positive way. Yet we forget that his faithfulness can also be negative and that it's severe. We need to remember that the Lord's threats of judgment are not empty threats, beloved, and that the warnings of the Bible, they are very real. And the thing is that God is just as diligent in being faithful over his promises of grace, even if it means his reputation. And this is the next thing that Daniel recognized about his Lord's sovereignty, that it was also a humble sovereignty. Look down in verse 2. Daniel tells us, that, tells us that as the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand, the Lord also gave some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now think about this, church. How would the people in Israel and in Babylon and all over the ancient Near East world, how would they have viewed this? They, have, they would have viewed this as an utter defeat for God. All that was in the Lord's temple was now in the temple of the Babylonian God. And God knew how this would look on him. He knew how it would look when he gave those holy items that belonged to his sanctuary to the treasury of an idol made with hands where pagans lifted up their voices and they sang praise Marduk from whom all blessings flow. Well, what can we conclude? That God who is sovereign 
was willing to suffer shame and to give up for the time being the reputation of his name. Why? Why? What was all this for? To awaken his people and to save them. That God was willing in a way to be humiliated and scorned if by so doing he would purge his people. And you see, church, isn't this what we see when we look into the person of Jesus Christ? That though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, every time I come to a church and I preach, even in my own church, I, I never take for granted that there are non-Christians in the church. And not only are there non-Christians in the church, but we need to hear the gospel each and every Sunday because that's how we live. If any of you here are not a Christian, the holy and sovereign God is faithful. Faithful to his word. And he tells us in his word that the wages of sin is death and that the soul who sins shall die. This is not an empty threat. And the great tragedy of the human race is that we are all fallen, all of us. We are fallen sinners, deserving of our due wages. But the gospel is this, that God was willing to suffer humility and shame in the person of Jesus Christ and to die as a pariah on that cross in the place of sinners. You see, God was faithful. He didn't break any promises, but he came through on his promise to punish sin. And hear this, he came through on his promise to save sinners such as ourselves. And he gives us the promise, yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. God was and is faithful to his word. And on the cross, severe to his son, but life, life for you. And this free gift is given to those who come and who come to him, who trust in him, who trust in his word, who trust in Christ. You see, for Daniel, in the midst of this personal and national catastrophe, he recognized that God was sovereignly faithful, that his purposes were being fulfilled. And what caused Daniel to live for God, even though he was pressed into such a painful experience was because he recognized that God himself was in it. And if God, if God was in it, God was able to protect him in it and direct him in it and use him in it for his good purpose. Daniel was able to grasp that simple yet all too important principle of the sovereignty of God in his life. And so you see, Christian, it will, it, it will be so very difficult to be faithful in our own pressing circumstances, if we fail to recognize that God is sovereign and He is in control, that whatever evil we experience, we can know that it is meant for our good. Without that recognition, we will only be able to interpret the events of our lives through a human perspective. But you see, as the children of God, our Lord wants us to see it through the perspective of our Father. Whether you lost a loved one, whether you lost a loved one in the womb, 
We're in a, at an elderly age. Church, what, what trials do you have that are, that are taking place in your life right now that you are viewing with the wrong lenses? I would say be like Daniel. Recognize that sovereignty. That sovereignty that is orchestrating all things for there's nothing that is incidental nor accidental but all serve his, all serve his purpose. And if you're a Christian, do you, do you believe that? And you might be saying, Pastor Danny, I know that. Pastor Sam preaches on that. I know my theology, but it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to live it, right? It's hard to live it. Well, then ask the Father. Father, I believe, but help my unbelief. How was Daniel to remain faithful? Firstly, he recognized the sovereignty of God. Notice, secondly, he realized what was spiritually taking place in the halls of that palace. Daniel, he was keenly aware and he had the wisdom to know what the king of Babylon was attempting to do with him and his friends. You see, on the surface, it could have looked like that the pagan king was simply taking the best of Israel and employing them for his service. But there was something deeper going on here. There was a spiritual war that was taking place. Well, you might be asking, well, what evidence do we have that shows us that Daniel had a deeper understanding of what was taking place? I want you to notice here in your Bibles, that when he tells us as to where the vessels of the house of God were taken, he says that the king of Babylon brought them into the land of Shinar. Where is Shinar? Shinar is the name for Babylon. And so if you use an NIV translation, it'll say Babylon instead of Shinar. Any of you here use an NIV? No? Oh, wow, Sam, you don't like the NIV. <laughs> well, the question is, why did Daniel just say that the things of God were taken into Babylon? It's because he used the land of Shinar on purpose. What was Daniel trying to communicate by using the land of Shinar instead of Babylon? He wanted to point us back to a time. He wanted to point us back to a time before Babylon was called Babylon, but Shinar. You see, that name Shinar was used in Genesis chapter 11, in the story of the Tower of Babel, where it says that the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And it's there in Shinar that the people built a city. But it wasn't just a city, but a city in opposition to God. Daniel has the spiritual insight to know that this is a battle between the city of God and the city of men. That what is happening in the book of Daniel is an age-old war of the people of God and the spiritual forces of darkness. That Babylon and Jerusalem aren't just cities, but they represent the only two cities in which all men and women belong. They symbolize two loyalties two masters, two allegiances, and the two are in opposition with one another. Jesus said it this way, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And there he said, if you remember the gospel accounts, you cannot serve both God and money. Well, Daniel, he sees that principle playing out here. These are not just events that are taking place, but a spiritual battle that is contending for his allegiance. 
And so he was aware. He was aware of what was taking place. And you see, for us as Christians, we must be aware. We must be aware of the things that are taking place. Every day there are Babylonian-like temptations seeking to take you away from the city of God and to possess your allegiance. There is a why. There is a reason as to why God says to us in His Word, put on the whole armor of God. These are not just some pithy Christian sayings. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, notice here, what was the plan or what was the strategy from the opposition? I want you to notice that when King Nebuchadnezzar, he overtook the people of God, it wasn't by sheer military might or by brute force. The fall of Jerusalem took 20 years and it happened in stages. And in Nebuchadnezzar's first assault, he didn't come and he didn't wipe out all the people. But he came after a certain group of people. Look at verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. You see, he had a plan. He had a plan. And it wasn't just to capture all the rulers. But notice the young teenagers. You see that? Not the leaders, not the commanders, not the priests, but the youth. Well, why? It's because if the Babylonian king were to destroy all the rulers and all the leaders and all the commanders and all the older citizens of Jerusalem, there was still a generation of Jews to replace them. But if he were to take hold of the youth, all of Jerusalem would fall. And you see, this is more than just a history lesson about Israel. But this is a warning for the church. That the way to destroy the church of God is to give our youth and to give our young people to the world. If we let Babylon come and take them away and we look at the contemporary church today and it feels like it feels like we're losing you see church we cannot let the city of God turn into the palace of Babylon the church is in need of young people who are like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah who refuse to bend and bow to the world who are willing to walk into the fiery furnace, if it means maintaining their witness, if it means holding on to their allegiance to Christ. I, uh, for myself, I pastor, there's a lot of young people at Pillar Baptist Church, and I, I'm constantly praying for them, thinking about them. I, I'm not a social media guy, but I know it takes place on social media. I know it takes place in the schools. I know it takes place in the colleges, in the workplace for a lot of these young folks. And I know the pressure is hard. The pressure is hard. Notice here in Daniel, what did Nebuchadnezzar do with the young people? Notice that he first, he isolated them. He isolated the young men from their families. But the real blow was to take them away from Jerusalem. And by so doing, he took them away from the worship of God and the fellowship of God's people because this was their lifeblood. This was their oxygen. Worship was their oxygen. And now it was no more. 
And so what was the king doing? The king was choking out all the influences that had shaped and molded their lives in the worship of God. And once they were isolated from the means of grace and of the things of God, maybe they would now be open to new influences. You see, church, one of the quick and easy ways to think very differently about God is to isolate yourself from the worship and from the people of God. That's a very fast way to think very differently about God. You know, COVID was a sad thing, and that's what happened to people as they isolated themselves from the worship of the people of God. They began to think differently about God. You see, the first and the worst thing that we could do to set our lives on the path of making shipwreck of our lives is to forsake the worship of God and to forsake the gathering of God's people. But there's a reason why Nebuchadnezzar did what he did. It's because isolation then opened the door to indoctrination. So notice what he does. Look at verse 4, the middle of verse 4. And competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Calvinists. Now that might seem very harmless. All they were doing was taking some courses in Babylonian studies, right? All they were doing was learning the Babylonian language. I'm Korean. I don't know anything about Korean. I don't know the alphabet. I don't know numbers. I don't know anything. So my parents, they call me a big idiot, right? And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to become the world. So I'm not going to learn Korean. I'm just kidding. No offense to anyone who's Korean here. But here, all they were doing was learning the Babylonian language. There's no harm in that, right? But Daniel knew what was spiritually taking place as the books were opened before him. There was an attempt to get their minds reprogrammed, re-educated. And you see, Daniel and his friends, they had grown up under the teaching of God's word. It is the Bible that had shaped them and molded them, given them a biblical worldview. Well, what was the goal of the king? To exchange that biblical worldview to one that was Babylonian. To replace their knowledge and understanding of the Bible with the myths and the legends of Shinar as their new source of wisdom. You see, the aim of the king was to indoctrinate them and into the world's way of thinking, into the worldview of the Babylonians. And you see, one of the greatest dangers a Christian can place him or herself in is to be unaware or to be unconcerned of this particular assault from the world. And it seems like the indoctrination that is taking place in our current context and culture is becoming more and more aggressive. And you see, the primary way, the most effective way to indoctrinating people is through subtlety. By teaching people without them knowing that they're learning. That's the most effective way. And you see, Christian, every day we are learning. And that in the most subtle ways. And you see, Daniel was aware of what was taking place in the royal court. And so the king's approach, notice, was to isolate them and then indoctrinate them. But notice next, it was to cause them to compromise. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They're, they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't take the young men and he doesn't cuff them in chains and throw them into a prison cell. He knows the human heart. He knows that every man has a price. 
And so he feeds them. He feeds them with good food. And he offers the, the young teenagers the finest food with the king's food and his, the king's drink. Daniel and his friends are offered all the privileges of being a part of the king's court, giving them high living, comfort, status, reputation, importance. Well, why? All to wean their desires from their God and that to the desires of Babylon, to get them to compromise. And you see, compromise doesn't come in leaps and bounds, but compromise always comes little by little. That's how it works. By starting with the harmless things, the inconsequential things, but slowly making its way to the important things. Which is why Jesus said, he who is faithful in very little is faithful in much. Notice lastly, along with the temptation to compromise, the king attempts to confuse them. Look at verse 6. Among these are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. You see, names matter. In the Bible, names matter. And in this instance, it matters as to who gives that name. Who gives that name? I was a little bit scared because very recently I found out, a couple years ago, I asked my parents, I'm like, who gave me my name? You guys gave me my name, obviously, right? They said, no, a Roman Catholic priest gave you your name. I was like, what? We used to be Roman Catholic. I'm like, you were? My dad's an elder now in the Presbyterian Church. I'm like, what? And I, I got nervous. He's like, a Roman Catholic priest gave me my name? Does that kind of fake? I was like, man, I, I want to email him and tell him I'm a Reformed Baptist pastor now, you know? But names matter. And in this instance, it matters who gives that name. The young men are given new names, and again, we might think, well, what's the harm? Maybe it was hard for the Babylonians to pronounce their names, right? So maybe they were, maybe they were given new names. But notice that's not what's taking place here. These young men had names that mattered. It testified as to their identity and to their God. Listen to what their names meant. Dan Yell. Dan Yell. My judge. My judge. God is my judge. Hananiah. Yahweh, the Lord, is gracious. Mishael. Who is like God? Azariah. The Lord is a helper. And notice what their new names were now. Belteshazzar. May Bel, the Babylonian God, protect you. Shadrach, live at the command of Ak, short for Aku, another one of the pagan gods. Meshach, who is like Aku. Abednego, servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. What was this doing to them? You see, day after day, Daniel and his three friends were being called by their Babylonian names with the hope that they that slowly they would lose their identity and forget who they were. And over and over again, as they, as they heard their Babylonian masters say to them through their newly given names, the constant message was, you belong to Babylon. You belong to Babylon. You belong to this Babylon God. You belong to this pagan world. 
And the great crisis and the great crossroad that Daniel and his friends came to was this. Who am I going to be? And who am I going to serve? Do I belong to this world or do I belong to God? And they asked that question as they lived, not in Jerusalem, but in the courts of Babylon. But you see, for Daniel and his friends, their situation did not define them. Their circumstances did not dictate who they would be. They didn't let their environment decide for them whose they were. And the pressure to conform, no doubt, it was great. It was great. They were given and they were offered all the privileges of living in Babylon. But Daniel had to answer the most important question in his young teenage life. Am I the Lord's or do I belong to another? You see men and women, especially young people here in this room, who are you going to choose? Whose God will you serve? The God of this world or the living God of heaven? And you see, as we look at our lives and as we take a step back, we find ourselves in the same predicament, don't we? The world is doing everything, everything it can to lure us into thinking with another world view, but by subtle persuasion. And you see, the devil wants us to change masters, and he can't do it by force. And so he tries to deceive us, to get us to think that we need Babylon, to instill in us a dependence upon Babylon, so that we would feel like we can't live without Babylon. So that we would walk away from the one true master and willingly walk into the arms of another. Now notice something about Daniel. There were some things that he couldn't change. He couldn't change the fact that he now lived in Babylon. He couldn't change the fact that they were calling him a Babylonian name. And so he had the wisdom to see what he, what he couldn't change but he also had the wisdom to see what he must refuse. And this is how Daniel remained faithful. How was he going to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How was he going to be totally faithful to the Lord his God? Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with king's food or with the wine that he drank. Notice it says there that he was resolved which is to say that he made the decision in his heart before God. He made up his mind that he would not be contaminated by the courts of Babylon. He made it his resolution to live exclusively for the Lord in this pagan land. He was resolved to take a stand. The Babylonians were able to change his name, but they didn't, he didn't allow them to change his heart. Can I ask you, church, can I ask you, Christian, what's your resolve? What have you resolved in your heart, no matter what situation or circumstance or trial or difficulty that you're going through? What have you resolved as you live in the proverbial course of Babylon? Uh, today at my church, uh, we have a, a Haitian missionary. He's a friend of mine. We live together when we were in seminary. And uh, he comes to our church every year, and I ask him, hey, how's, how's it going? Anything new happened this past year? He's all, yeah. Uh, the guy who's second in command at the Bible Institute or the seminary training center that he works at, uh, the guy who's pretty much the dean, he got kidnapped this year. And I was like, oh, man. 
And I told him, I'm all, I, I hear about these kidnappings in Haiti of Christians. He's like, yup, you will save public transportation because if you drive, they know you have money, they'll kidnap you right away. So he took public transportation. He was in Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti, and two guys came out with like Uzis, and uh, he tried to fight them, but he couldn't. They threw him into the car, put a bag over his head, <clears throat> and they kidnapped him. And they demanded a ransom of $200,000. And my friend, he got a phone call, and they were the kidnappers. And they said in Haiti, the kidnappers, they'll give you their cell phone number, because the government doesn't care. And they picked up the phone, and uh, my, my friend, his name's Willio, he knew he couldn't just give the money right away because he doesn't have the money. And so he talked with the dean's wife and said, just be calm, let's be patient, let's wait this out. Like, we don't have the money, nor can we, are we gonna give the money, let's just keep waiting it out. And so in the, at the end of the day, they kidnapped him for about six days, they gave him three meals, and they lowered the negotiation price from 200000 to $3,500. That money came out of uh, the money that they had been saving for the seminary, things like that. And I said, William, how did you even give them the money? Because I'm thinking about Jason Bourne identity. Like, what did you do? Did you eat out like a trash can at the park? He's like, no, you just send it to a cash app. I was like, what? And he said, because the government, they don't care. So he just, he knows their bank account. Well, anyways, the guy who was kidnapped, the dean, on the third day that he was kidnapped, he began preaching the gospel to his kidnappers. He began preaching to them while he had a bag over his head. And there's two captors. One captor just kept telling him, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. We're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. And the other guy started listening. And the dean, his name's Francois. He's, he's, uh, he's Haitian, but he also knows French. He said, you know what? If God wants me to die, he'll kill me. So if you kill me, that's his will. So I don't really care. We're not going to give you the $200,000. Because if he wants him to die, he'll kill him. And it's not you who's going to kill him. And so the, the other guy was a little bit getting nervous. He started listening to this gospel presentation. And he started telling the, the guy he kidnapped, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. And they say in Haiti, when a person gets kidnapped, they do some pretty crazy things that I see some kids that I can't speak of. But because he was a Christian man, they were afraid of doing that to him because they thought that God would bring some kind of curse upon him so they didn't touch him physically. Well, anyways, he kept preaching the gospel. Finally, they let him go. And a couple days after, he comes back home and gets a phone call from the kidnapper. And the kidnapper says, can you tell me that gospel again? I just want to know. And I just want to hear it again. And the guy who got kidnapped, the dean, he gives him the gospel, the full gospel, talks about the life of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ, talks about our need to place our trust in him. And he said, okay, they, hang, they hung up, and he didn't hear from him again. Isn't that a crazy story? When I heard that story, I was like, here I am living in San Ramon. Things like that don't happen to me. But it made me think about what have we resolved to do and resolved to live? How can we be faithful in whatever trying and whatever difficult circumstance that we might find ourselves in? And so how, how did Daniel remain faithful? It's because he sang, he sang this song in a foreign land. And I want to close with this. I want to close with these words from this hymn that you probably know. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler.
That's what Daniel understood in you. To remain faithful. Let's pray for the church. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for an example of faithfulness in this young man by the name of Daniel. But we know ultimately that, Lord, it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that we stand here today. We thank you for Christ our Savior, for giving to us his righteousness, for taking upon himself our unrighteousness. Lord, we understand that you are sovereign and you are in control. I pray that we might live in light of what we believe. And Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.